Hello and welcome to the MicroSamplify podcast, a partner to the microsampling blog from Neoterics. Listen in as we hear from key thought leaders in research science and medicine testify to the powers of microsampling in their industry. Welcome to part two of our MicroSamplify podcast interview with Dr. Ben Herbert, a research scientist with nearly 40 years of experience in protein chemistry, sample preparation, fractionation, and proteomics. Dr. Herbert is co-founder and chief scientific officer at Sanguabio in Sydney, Australia, which is based at the Colling Institute at Royal North Shore Hospital. Dr. Herbert's recent research focus is on cytokines, and in this second part of his interview with Dr. James Rudge of Neoterix, he discusses the impact of cytokines on immune response in COVID-19, as well as sample preparation for microsampling studies. Could you talk a little bit about the the effects of the immune response that causes the kind of the um, the ramp up to towards severe COVID? Well, the the cytokine that's most um, discussed in this seems to be interleukin six, mm. and one of the things about it that that I've read and there's multiple papers on this is there there are higher levels of IL-6 in the plasma of people with COVID and it it goes up people with severe COVID their levels of IL-6 are high but the people with that end up having what's called a cytokine storm their levels of IL-6 are high but not massively different to the people who who have severe COVID but not cytokine storm events. That's interesting. And so um, my my guess here is that there are things that are related to underlying comorbidities that are not particularly well understood. And and I in preparation for this, I've, I've looked at some of these papers again, and they talk about things like dysregulation of the cytokine and immune response. But then they go on to say it's not incredibly well understood what's really going on. And if you go back and look at the study that we did back in 2019 in so-called healthy people, and even before then when we were looking in smaller groups of people, what we found was that you could barely even detect things like interleukin-6 in the blood of healthy people. And when you did detect it, it was in relation to either an acute or a chronic event. And so Mm. in people who were obese, what you found was there was detectable levels of IL-6. And if you then went and looked at things like, for example, um, the adipokines like leptin and adiponectin, you found those at quite different um, levels in those people. And that, you know, there is and there has been multiple publications showing that people who are overweight, for example, or who have other conditions like, say, um, diabetes, are at more risk of COVID. And my 
assumption here, and I think the literature bears this out, is that those kinds of comorbidities then um, lend themselves to having a more severe kind of, of COVID problem. And I, I think that's where things like longitudinal microsampling and understanding what somebody's baseline really looks like will enable you to then understand who's more likely to have a severe um, COVID problem. Um, the difficulty of doing that kind of study now is that we're still in the middle of the pandemic and finding uh, naive groups of people who've not been exposed to COVID or um, haven't been vaccinated is, is quite difficult. So um, I, I think as we come out of the pandemic, these sorts of studies where the lessons that have been learned from COVID will be then applied to how do we prepare for the next pandemic? Because yeah. you know, there's an awful lot of uh, activity happening now and and it's been hugely successful, really, in terms of the speed and the effectiveness of what's happened to address COVID. But I think there'll be a lot of lessons that come out of it about what should we be doing to prepare for the next one to try and understand how to identify people who are at risk for the, for the next kind of either variant of COVID or the next distinct pandemic. Yeah, so in, in it, so what you're saying is that, uh, that the, the, because certain individuals have almost got their immune systems pre primed almost, you know, with, yeah. with, with an inflammatory response, that that's going to be more severe. And so that's really quite fascinating. And I didn't I thought of it like that, but that makes some, a lot of sense. And it, and it makes your research all the more important from what you did, you know, prior to the, prior to the pandemic to to actually help understand what are those risk factors are that, that again, that proteogenomic approach that, 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 you, that you made. That's um, right. Well, I think it's um, the, the way you see the world, I guess, the way I see it and the way most of the people I work with see it is it's a network that that everything um, everything inside your body is a network and even within each individual cell there's a network of interactions going on and what that really means is that there's no simple and useful way to partition things and say well here's a person with disease X like diabetes, but that's not relevant to their um, lung infection issues with COVID. That's clearly not the case. They're, that networking and everything being connected together means that there clearly is going to be an effect of having, say, diabetes on what happens when you get a lung infection like COVID. Of course, that then leads you on to microsampling because the way to get enough data points from enough people frequently enough is to use microsampling. And and I guess what you've seen and certainly what we've seen is there's been a huge acceleration in the number of groups interested in microsampling who you know, and that's been driven greatly by the pandemic that, that groups are, are going, we really want to 
you know, we need to understand this and, and this is a way to do it. Absolutely. Like, like you know, uh, what you mentioned just a moment ago, that there are groups literally collecting samples and biobanking them so they can they, 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 so they can they, they can do something with them later on, which they once they figured out what it is that they want to do almost yeah. with those samples, which yeah. make which is quite, quite, quite remarkable. And talking about um, sort of projects, new projects, we know that you have uh, expertise in sample preparation and sample extraction. Can you describe a research project in which you've used Mitra devices for micro sampling and discuss the pros and cons? you encountered with preparing and extracting from these microsamples versus traditional whole blood samples or serum samples and I suppose how what lessons can be learned for for, for future projects yeah it, it's of course everything in the world of uh, immunoassay so that's what we tend to use as single plex assays like ELISA's or multiplex um, immunoassays and they're essentially set up to work in a matrix of serum or plasma um, or things like cell culture, supernatant uh, and that kind of stuff. So when you go and look at the instructions on almost every immunoassay that you get, it says pretty clearly that if the blood sample you're working with is hemolyzed, um, which means you've damaged red blood cells that you shouldn't analyze that sample because you'll get the wrong answer. And, and of course, what we do from liquid blood samples is deliberately analyze red blood cells. And so that produces its own challenges in terms of making sure that that matrix works for your immunoassay. And then when you go to a dried blood spot, you're, you've got whole blood, and what you're extracting from Mitra is massive concentrations of hemoglobin and albumin and all of the abundant proteins, and there's no real way of getting rid of them. And what compounds that is, what you're trying to do is analyze proteins like interleukin-1 beta and interleukin-6, which are present in the low picogram per mil concentrations. So you need to extract in quite small volumes in order to be able to even see them in your assay. So we we tend to extract Mitra in quite small volumes, well under 100 microliters. So we're compounding every matrix effect that, that you can have. So the lab team that we've got at Sangui Bio has done a great job, spent a lot of time making sure that the answers we get are, are real um, and they're not just, you know, matrix effect answers. We, uh, you know, that that's a critical aspect of this. There's no value for us in extracting a sample in one mil, because if we extract a 20 or 30 microliter metre in one mil, you won't see, you, you'll well outside the concentration to be able to detect any of these really low abundance proteins. So those things have been challenges um, and to then scale that up, you know, we've built devices that have enabled us to do that kind of extraction in a 96 well plate format and Mitra are great because they've been built to work in a 96 well plate format. So that has made that a whole lot easier for us as well. Um, so that that whole area of 
extracting and making sure that you understand that the matrix effect is has been a uh, you know a big part of what we've done and comparing then which analytes you see the same answer for in say serum or plasma from liquid blood um, do you see that answer from a dried blood spot so looking at you know the markers everyone wants to understand like like c-reactive protein crp we mm. we don't really see that associated with things like red cells so broadly there's the same level of crp in a liquid blood sample as there is in a dried blood spot but you still need to take account of things like the hematocrit of the blood to get you know to be able to calculate then a ratio and get the the real answer of crp um interesting so things like that are, are important. That's why having a liquid blood sample occasionally from people so that you can actually get a handle on what their hematocrit is, is, is useful. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and like you said, what, what complicates matters further when you were saying earlier on was the fact that the concentrations of these, these molecules can differ in red blood cells to, to, to plasma. So when, when, when you're dealing with a, um, a molecule that lives primarily in the plasma for example an immunoglobulin then measuring the hemoglobin to get to a hematocrit value can allow you to approximate um yeah. sort of serum levels pretty well but when you're dealing with molecules that also can live in the in the hematocrit as well it, it makes life even all that more complicated doesn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. you know that's why most of the projects that we do now we 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 just call them a hybrid project but all we really mean by that is that we have um patients when they do go to their doctor or come to the hospital they have a, a venous blood sample taken so you get a conventional blood sample that you can do all of the normal things with you can send it to a pathology lab if you want to to get the the gold standard of things like crp or you know liver enzymes or whatever it is that you want to look at plus you can do your own research panels on that liquid blood and that gives you a, a baseline then a model of what that blood looks like to compare it to the mitra samples when you get them um, and that just gives you a much better view of what you're getting out of mitra because of course there's been decades of I guess what you'd call um, work, learning, um, understanding of what a liquid blood sample really looks like in, in terms of analysing serum or plasma. So every clinician and every researcher you talk to, when they talk about a blood sample, what they really mean is a serum or plasma level of whatever marker they're talking about. And so when you present them with data from dried blood spots, those data are, are quite often different and so you've got to have a sensible explanation for why that's the case um, so that you don't just get met with a well that's not the right answer and therefore we're not going to use it um, that's you know yeah which is which is un unhelpful yeah and you mentioned about your projects so um could you uh, expand on a little bit if you can uh, about your new projects uh, moving forward with uh, with microsampling yeah, so the, the ones that are running at the moment for us, um, there's some in the planning stage, but we've got 
projects running now, mostly looking at cancer. Uh, so we've got a lung cancer study running at the hospital where um, people are coming in at time zero and then at three months and at six months and they have a venous blood sample taken then. They also get a mitra taken at each one of those points. So you have an exact uh, comparison at that point of a finger prick mitra and a venous blood sample on the same day at the same time. And the other advantage of that is that they're then being shown how to take a mitra. So our hope from that is that we get better um, success rates of, of filling Mitra. They then fill, they get sent home with Mitra devices um, and lancets and everything in the kit that we got from you guys at Neoterix. They sample themselves then at home. They send those back to us through the post and they come back at three months. They do it again. They come back at six months. Um, so that study's uh, still recruiting and we're tracking those people and what that's led on to is then uh, doing that kind of work now but looking at specific subgroups of lung cancer and specific therapeutics that are being applied so we've got um, some new studies that are about to start looking at um, you know very specific drugs in lung cancer so um, so I think you know for us it's been really a great journey with micro sampling and it and the ability to demonstrate that it works and show those data has really widened out the group of researchers and clinicians that have started to want to work with us and that's that's what you want right you you're doing this to try and expand and to um, get this reach into more projects and more diseases and more sort of sample types. Um, there's a another project that we're just in the early planning of, which is looking at um, not cancer, but people with musculoskeletal trauma. So whether that's been an accident, for example, or they've, you know, they've had a severe uh, joint problem or they've got chronic back pain. Uh, and there's lots of issues with pain relief in those people. So the guy we're dealing with here um, has come from North America originally, and this project is running over there, but doesn't have a blood sampling component to it. He's looking to get that going here in Australia and looking at a whole range of different things in people with chronic pain who've had some kind of musculoskeletal trauma. And he's excited to add in a micro sampling component to it so that we can then track those people's um, blood over time as well and look at all of the same kind of things and see what sort of effect there is um, depending on what kind of treatment um, and drugs those people might be on. So so they're the things that are coming along for us at the hospital. That's fantastic. Well, um, thank you, Dr Herbert, for speaking with us about how you can apply microsampling in your work. We wish you great success with your ongoing cytokine studies and the other projects you've just mentioned. And thanks to our audience for listening to this episode of the Microsamplified podcast, a partner to the microsampling blog from Neoterics. Thank you. Thank you.